Open your Bibles to Matthew 18, 21 to 35 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Uh, the date was January 8th, 1956. I bet you don't even know what happened that day. January 8th, 1956. Scroll back through your Rolodex of your mind. Remember anything significant? January 8th, 1956. You're thinking, no, I don't, I don't remember anything significant that happened that day. On that day, 10 Huarani warriors killed Jim Elliott and four of his missionary companions. They were going out as missionaries to an unreached people group who had never heard the gospel. They had made contact with them in the air via airplanes as they circled around their little remote village. And they had decided that they had become friendly enough with them that they were going to risk landing the plane, walking onto the beach in peace, to try to build some sort of relationship with them and share the gospel. That was the hope. The Huarani warriors came out with spears in their hands and killed Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions. Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and a lady by the name of Rachel Saint, who was a sister of one of those missionaries that died. Obviously, they had fled fear of their own lives. They later returned to, these, to the Huarani people, to the Aka people, and led many of them to Christ. They were the ones that were able to break through and offer to them salvation. To make things even crazier, many of them came to know Christ, and one of the warriors later became a pastor of the church that was subsequently planted in amongst this people group. And that warrior later baptized two of the missionary children that he had killed. How does one extend that kind of forgiveness to a group of people? To an individual? How, how does one do that? Now, if you think about it, for Elizabeth Elliot and for Rachel Saint and for all the others that went back to this tribe to share the gospel, how in the world were they able to get over what, it, what they had done to their husband or their brother or their dad. These kids are in there with them. How are they able to do this, extend that kind of forgiveness? In our passage this morning, Jesus commands His community of disciples. I'm going to close out chapter 18 with this command that Jesus gives to His community of disciples to be a group of people that offer radical forgiveness, that are known for their radical forgiveness. Let's look at our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, passage that we just read is terribly difficult and daunting, and I pray that you help it make sense to us in the minutes that we have here, that you would apply it to our hearts and show us the areas in our life, the people in our life to whom we still have bitterness and resentment toward Pray that you would bring those things out throughout the course of this sermon in our own hearts, that we may confess them, that we may make amends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've seen in Matthew chapter 18, as we've been going, going through it in the last few weeks, Matthew 18 is, is mostly one long, unbroken sermon, or, or you might say teaching, from Jesus to his disciples. And remember, originally, back at the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples had asked that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus explains to them that it's humility that they should be concerned with, not greatness. It's humility that even qualifies one for admittance into the kingdom of heaven. And, and in that humility, their dependence, much like that of children, should be on Him. They should find their dependence on Christ and Christ alone. So if they don't, they're not going to be in the greatest position. They're not going to be even in the lowest position. They're going to find themselves on the outside of the kingdom of heaven looking in if they don't find their dependence on Christ. And he goes on to say that their, their humility is going to be seen in how they care for the least of these, his disciples. Jesus, sheep, he, he says, they're going to be tempted by sin of all kinds. Temptation of sin is, is bound to come. And, and they're to be warned he tells them they should cut off their hand, gouge out their eye, cut off their foot if, if it's causing them to, to sin. And it would be better for them to limp into the kingdom of heaven than to walk into hell with both feet. Humility and dependence on Jesus, it turns out, is a lifelong battle with sin and temptation. A battle so fierce that if it required a follower of Jesus to cut off his hand or gouge out his eye, or cut off his foot, it would be worth it. The stakes, in other words, to enter the kingdom of heaven could not be higher. And the disciples' war with sin could not be more difficult. But then he says that these sheep, they need care. 
And, it, and the responsibility falls on the entire church to care for these sheep as they wander away from the body and they wander into sin. They get lost in sin. The body wanders after them to correct them in sin and to bring them back. He tells them, tell it to the church if one wanders away. We're going to find these sheep. We're going to bring them back in and help them in their struggle with sin and temptation. And as it turns out, the gospel is defended by the body when it removes from its midst sheep that are actually found to be wolves. And the gospel is defended when the body goes out after sheep that are wandering and brings them back in so that they may repent. Because, as it turns out, the pursuit of holiness is the name of the game. The reason that we're gathered here together is to pursue holiness Together, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness and into the light. And then together to pursue holiness as a lifestyle. So the body of Christ then receives into its assembly the repentant. Not merely the one who says, I believe, but the one who actually repents of sin. Well, then naturally, this would raise a question. Peter, who is often the spokesperson of the group, is the one who volunteers to ask the question. He has a, a question about the forgiveness that should be offered to these ones that wander into sin and temptation, the ones that sin against him. It, it, it naturally brings up this question of how often are we to actually forgive this kind of person? And so Jesus is going to answer that question directly, and then he's going to respond further with a parable that will follow after that, and it's going to tell us the nature of forgiveness, both personal forgiveness that we offer to one another and corporate forgiveness that the church offers to the wayward sinner. If there is one struggle that's common to us all, it would be forgiving someone who has offended us. There are tragedies that come every day at the hands of people that seem to not really deserve our forgiveness. Your sin is too great. You don't deserve forgiveness. And so I want us to see the principles that Jesus lays out here and then talk about this from an applicational perspective. How do we actually put these principles into practice? Two things Jesus has to say here. The first is that the forgiveness we give to one another should be limitless. The forgiveness that we give to one another should be limitless. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You have to love Peter. Peter's an encouragement to all of us. Not only because he regularly puts his foot in his mouth, but typically because he asks the question that all of us have bouncing around in our head. He's not afraid. He just asks the question. Now, at first read, when you hear Peter asking this question, you might be tempted to think that he's talking about limiting the forgiveness that he's supposed to give to these sheep. That he's saying, look, as many as seven times, 
Like, like Jesus put some parameters on it. You told me just to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. But what I'm not hearing on the back end is, is, is there, are there limits? Surely there's some boundaries. And you might be tempted to read Peter as saying that. But if I could step in and just defend Peter for just a minute, I think it might be worth it. The traditional teaching of the rabbis would say at the time of, of Jesus, and, and no doubt Peter was brought up under this teaching the teaching said basically that if a brother sins three times, forgive him, but the fourth time, no forgiveness is to be had. For the rabbis, forgiveness three times is very generous. The fourth time, generosity has run out. So Peter, it would seem here, is probably thinking about the teaching that he's received since his childhood and is noticing that Jesus' kingdom that he's presenting is absolutely more gracious than anything he's grown up under. And so Peter is doubling the grace that he, is, that he has been taught. He's being more gracious than he's been taught to be. And after all, I mean, forgiveness at some point surely does have limits. But I recognize that Jesus' kingdom is more gracious, and so let me double the teaching of the rabbis. Seven times? Are we talking like... A lot. This is a lot of grace that we're given to this person. How does Jesus respond in verse 22? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of you may have 70 times seven, while other people will have 77 times. We don't know which one's original, but either one could be argued. The point is, if you're arguing that, you've totally missed Jesus' point altogether. Jesus might as well have said a billion times, because his expectation is that You'll lose count. And that's the point. You're forgiving so much, I don't even remember how many times. And 77 times or 490 times, it's unreasonable for someone to track either number. Now, the reason that all these sevens pop up is, is it's a little bit different for us as, as Americans or uh, modern people, I suppose. We, ha- we think of everything in tens. Ten, for us, is a nice round number. We round up to 10. We round down to 10. Everything for us, we think in tens, in hundreds, in thousands. Those numbers feel complete for us. They feel round. We call them round numbers. It's a nice round number, right? Well, for a Jew, they don't think in tens. They think theologically. So they think in sevens. Seven sounds like a nice round number to them. In fact, that's how many days it took God to create and rest, right? Seven days. That's a nice round number. It's perfect for everyone. Our week works off sevens. Why isn't it? It's a nice round number. So if Jesus was talking to us as Americans, he would probably say something like, I do not say to you ten times, but thousands of times. Jesus is is pushing against their nature. he's, He's pushing against their nature. He's pushing against our nature. He's infringing upon their system of justice and their sense of justice. And he's, he's pushing against our sense of justice. Lord, surely at some point I reserve the right to be angry and upset. Don't I at some point get to actually exercise some bit of anger and withhold forgiveness from someone who's done me wrong? At some point, don't I actually get to exercise justice against this person? And the answer that's returned to us is, no, you don't. That's hard for me to take. 
Remember the previous passage has assumed that inside the church community, there is going to be friction. He assumes that at some point, someone is going to sin against you. Shocker of all shockers, I know, you're all surprised. I'm sure that's never happened to you inside of a church. Someone sinned against you. These are supposed to be Jesus people. It assumes that that's going to happen. And Jesus gives strict instructions of what to do if a person does not repent of their sin against you. And he tells them in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, the church is to understand this person as an unbeliever. So the sin that is envisioned here is both sin inside the church that the church is supposed to deal with and and interpersonal sin between two people. Because the reality is this, that there is no sin inside the church, whether it be sin that you commit individually in the secret, sin that is committed between two individuals, Sin that is committed in a group. There is no sin inside the church body that the church as a collective whole doesn't have a right to be concerned about. You understand that? Not one sin that exists in the church body that the church body as a whole doesn't have a right to be concerned about or has no business in. It's all our collective business. So Jesus is commanding both the whole church as a, the church as a whole and the disciples In particular, when he responds to Peter here, this is potentially very difficult for you to hear, depending on what you came in here with, or perhaps some whatever conflict you might have come in here with this morning. Some of you may come in here harboring feelings of bitterness towards a spouse, perhaps a family member, maybe a friend that has done you wrong, and And you're hearing this voice inside your head, maybe. Maybe I'm the only one that hears voices inside my head, but maybe a little bit too much information. But you're hearing this voice inside your head that's justifying your lack of forgiveness. It's saying things like, yeah, but this has gone on for so long. But this person just seems to refuse to change no matter what. How long do I have to continue to forgive Sometimes we may even go so long without forgiving that we forget that we haven't forgiven. Just know that you're not alone. Every single one of us in here has struggled, is currently struggling, or will one day struggle with forgiving someone else. None of us are predisposed to forgive. It's against all of our natures, what Jesus is saying here. We do not have a nature that says to us, forgive everybody. Forgive those who wronged you. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That is totally against all of our natures. All of us are right here with Peter, perhaps willing to grant some grace, maybe. So long as they grovel at our feet and ask for it. Perhaps we're willing to grant even just a little bit of grace. But that grace has limits, after all. I don't like the idea of unlimited grace because there's one basic reason that I don't like that. It puts me in a position where I feel like I'm always going to be the one being taken advantage of. 
Well, where does it run out? Do I just keep forgiving? Because, because then, when, am I, when do I stop being taken advantage of? That's not to mention the kinds of repugnant sins that people commit against us. Was you supposed to forgive them? How many times must I forgive this person before I just write them off as unworthy of my forgiveness? But Jesus responds, that's not for you to decide. That's not yours. The forgiveness that you are to offer has no limits. It has no bottom. In other words, the voice inside your head that's justifying your lack of forgiveness is not the voice of Jesus. That's the voice of Satan. That's what that sounds like. Not this time. When Jesus is saying, I do not say to you seven times. Seventy times seven. I don't say to you ten times. Thousands of times. The forgiveness that we give should be limitless. But why? The forgiveness we give is based on God's forgiveness of us. That's the reason why. It's the second point. The forgiveness we give is based on God's forgiveness of us. So Jesus gives a parable. He says in 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment that to be, in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it helpful when there's foreign currency at work here to translate that into modern currency so that we can understand the analogy that Jesus is drawing here. I think it's helpful. I don't know what a talent is, and so I need it converted into modern currency. A talent is about 20 years worth of wages. One talent equals about 20 years worth of wages. So let's put that in today's money to make it make sense to us and feel it as Jesus' original audience would have felt it, okay? As of October 31st, 2020, I had to look this up because I didn't know, as of, and I didn't want anybody to accuse me of making it up, okay? So here it is. As of October 31st, 2020, the average annual pay for the average jobs category in Alabama is $53,786 a year. It's the average in the average jobs category, okay? So one talent would equal, for the average Alabamian, about a million dollars, okay? That's 20 years worth of wages, roughly. All right. The debt that this man owes is 10,000 talents, so we're talking about $10 billion that this man owes. We're to think about this in modern terms. This man owes $10 billion. Now, when you read this parable, think he owes $10 billion. When he says, I'll pay you everything, have patience with me. How long we got? All right. How long are we going to be waiting? All right. So you're hearing this like they would have heard it back then. It's like, that's an unbelievable amount of money. So in this parable, the king plays the role of God and the servant plays the role of us. There's a debt that this man owes, which is 
like the debt of sin that sin has put us in before God. And so the king decides that it's time to settle all the debts that are owed to him. So this servant is called to the carpet. And this servant doesn't have, obviously, the $10 billion in his savings account, or else he would be the master. And so his only option is to plead with the king lest he be put in jail and his wife, his wife and children sold. And he says, I will pay you everything, which is particularly comedic, because we know that this is $10 billion we're talking about. There's no way he could possibly pay that. So look at what happens next in verse 27. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him the same thing, have patience on me, and I will have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he, he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the servant is completely absolved of the $10 billion dollars we're going to come back to in a little bit. But now there's a role reversal. The, the one in debt has now become the Lord and someone owes him money. He has his own debtor. And so there's this parallel to what it's like when someone sins against us. It's like they owe us a debt, just like we owed a debt to the Lord. But this debt, he says, is a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius is a one day's wage, Okay. So a hundred denarii in our vernacular would be to us like $15,000. Now, $15,000 is nothing to sneeze at, right? I mean, any one of us, if we lost $15,000 or somebody owed us $15,000, we would probably want it back. And if that's not you, then come see me after this. We need to talk. <laughs> However, we scoff at the $15,000 not because it's, an, it's a terrible amount or it's, or it's a pittance or anything like that. We scoff at it because in light of the $10 billion that he has just been forgiven, $15,000 in light of that $10 billion seems a drop in the bucket by comparison. So it's no surprise then what happens next in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw that he had taken place, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. The reason that the master is upset is because the servant did not reflect to someone else the same forgiveness he was shown. Because as it turns out, the point that Jesus is making is that forgiveness is the very character of God. And our forgiveness of others is to reflect the kind of forgiveness that we have been shown by him. God's intent for us then is to demonstrate the abundant love and mercy that He has shown us to the people around us. It shows everyone what sort of supernatural ability God has to forgive you when we have a supernatural ability to forgive others. See, God's forgiveness cannot be repaid. But it is to be paid forward. You can't repay it. But you are to pay it forward. You are to pay it to others. You show the world God's character 
when you forgive. You demonstrate the gospel when you forgive. Isn't this what we've been talking about for the last three months or more? Where the community that God has created in the church are people where He's removed the heart of stone and He has put in the Spirit. His very own Spirit that magnifies His very own nature to others. Because you and I, it's not in our nature to forgive like that. We don't want to. The voice you're hearing in your head to not forgive somebody is your very flesh that says, I don't want to forgive. That's your nature. But the good news is that for the people of God, God has taken out the old nature and put in the new nature. Or I should say, put in the new nature on top of the old nature. So now we have two warring dogs within us. One that does not want us to forgive and one which is the very nature of God compelling us to forgive. That nature can forgive. So some may ask, how do I know if I have actually forgiven someone? How do I know if I've forgiven someone? In this parable, we infer what forgiveness actually means, and that is patently obvious, canceling the debt, right? Canceling the debt. You say you've forgiven them, but are there still repercussions that you're making them pay? Is there still the silent treatment? Is there still the withholding of certain things that you would normally give to them? All because of the sin that they've committed against you? That you say you have forgiven them of, but are you still making them pay the debt? I do want to add a word here. Because typically there's a question that, all, that rises up in the minds of, of some in the congregation when we teach on forgiveness or when I teach on forgiveness and that is about abuse. Pops up in, in people's minds and potentially you might be in a situation where you either have been abused in the past or you are being abused currently and you come in, you sit in the sermon and you hear me talk about forgiveness and the reasoning that is going on in your mind is, well, I'm being abused, and so he's telling me that I should just go and forgive and just continue to take the abuse. And that's not exactly what I'm saying. Abuse is illegal. You understand? Abuse is illegal. And God has given to us repercussions for those that abuse others. And that is the law. The job of the law, as instituted by God Himself, is to punish the evildoer. That's its job. That's why the government wields the sword, is so that they can punish the evildoer. So, notifying the authorities of abuse is obedience to God. It's not coming back in and and just taking the abuse. No, it's notifying the authorities. And letting the justice system go to work to punish the evildoer as it was instituted by God to do. Now, forgiving the abuser on the back end while they're being punished for their crime is more what I'm talking about. Forgiving the abuser after they're being punished is something Jesus is talking about. And that's something that's really hard to do. 
If you've ever talked to people who have been abused or you've ever been abused yourself, you know what I'm talking about. That's a very difficult place to be in. So you're going to ask, probably, you or anybody else that's been sinned against, how do I do that? How can I possibly forgive this person? When you view the sin that someone has done against you, it should always, 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 always be balanced against the wrong that you have done against God. Always it should be held in balance against the wrong you've done to God. So here Jesus is telling you that your sin against God versus other people's sin against you would be like $10 billion versus $15,000. It's not that $15,000 is insignificant. Jesus is not downplaying someone's sin against you. We've already seen $15,000 is nothing to sneeze at. Everybody in that congregation that's listening to Jesus talk would gladly take 100 days wages in their pocket. Every single one of them would. It's not insignificant. But that your sin against an infinitely holy God, the infinitely holy God of the universe, no less, it pales by comparison. He's also not saying that their sin is meaningless. Who cares about it? Just throw it away. It's completely meaningless. He's already told us in the passages that precede this, if sin is holding you back from the kingdom of, of God, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. That's how serious sin is. If someone continues to sin, go after them and let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector if they refuse to listen. It needs to be dealt with, but it also needs to be forgiven. So the wrong suffered at the hands of other people must always be balanced against the sin that we've committed against God and the forgiveness that we found in the cross. So in other words, forgiveness is one of the central missions of the church. And as a member of the body of Christ, it has to be central to my own nature as well. If I really am a member of the body of Christ. That is, if the Holy Spirit really does dwell within me. And the nature of God is toward forgiveness and grace and mercy. Then it should be my mission as well. Demonstrating the same kind of forgiveness that we have been shown is how the world sees the gospel within us. We complain about those family members that sin against us, that don't know God, and we go, how are they ever going to become a Christian? Well, let's start by you forgiving them. So that they can actually see forgiveness in action. And this is really difficult because as it turns out, we're a pack of sinners. And we're constantly bumping into one another. There's constantly friction. But I want you to consider just for a moment what you're actually saying when you withhold forgiveness. When you turn to the believer, the one who's a follower of Christ, who you think is going to be with you in heaven one day, all right? This kind of, this is a Christian that you're talking about. You're withholding forgiveness. You say, I do not forgive you. Think about what you're saying when you do that. I know that God forgives you even though His standard of holiness is here. But listen, my standard of holiness is like here. So there's no way I could extend to you forgiveness because 
God's standard of holiness is just a little bit too low. God has forgiven them, but I can't. Now imagine what you're saying to a non-believer, someone who does not believe in the gospel. You say, I don't forgive you. That's the same thing as saying, I know that when your life is over as a non-believer, you are going to go to hell. That is the punishment that God has reserved for those who do not submit their life to Christ. I know that. And that He has determined that hell is the right punishment for someone who, has, who does not believe in Christ. I know that. But listen, I think you deserve more than hell. I think you deserve all of hell and all the resentment and bitterness that I can give you now. Instead of leaving it, in other words, to God to decide what to do with this person, instead of letting wrath and vengeance be His, declares the Lord. I want it to be mine. And so all you're doing by holding on bitterness and resentment and a lack of forgiveness, all you're doing in that is taking vengeance and wrath from God and saying, no God, I'll take care of this. Let me handle it. I don't really trust you to take care of it the way I see fit. Listen, there are heinous atrocities that people suffer at the hands of other people. I'm not talking about minor offenses. I'm talking about offenses so great they shouldn't be mentioned in front of children. And my guess is that by sheer statistics, in this room or even watching online, some of you are thinking about those kinds of things that have played out in your own life. Listen to me, harboring bitterness will never achieve justice. Will never achieve justice. It will eat you alive, but it will never achieve justice. God has given us an earthly justice system which should be sought out and should be exercised. He's also given us a heavenly justice system. The earthly one, though necessary, we all have to recognize is temporary and in many cases insufficient. Which one of us has not watched a pedophile walk free and thought, there's something wrong with this picture? It's insufficient. We recognize that. But the heavenly one is permanent. And the heavenly one will be sufficient. But you can also rest assured no one will be overlooked, including you and me. Divine justice is reserved for God alone. But see, forgiveness illustrates the very character of God. It was Jesus, after all, who on the cross, being innocently crucified, cried out to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Elizabeth Elliot, over the death of her husband, said this, God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. How can we possibly forgive like this? 
There's two verses at the end that I think are oddly comforting. He says, And in his anger the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to, you, to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, how's that comforting? We've already talked about forgiving our brother from our heart is impossible for our nature. And we've seen that it's canceling a record of debt. In other words, he owes us nothing anymore. And we've also seen that it, the standards of Christ, all the way back in Matthew chapter 6, he prays in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. So let me ask, if God forgave you in the same way that you forgive other people, what would eternity look like for you? That doesn't seem very encouraging at all. Forgiveness is against our nature, no doubt. But our forgiveness should be limitless because God's forgiveness of us is limitless. But this is the good news. Forgiveness is obviously part of His very nature. He is loving, He is compassionate, down to the infinite bottom. And you probably think it's impossible to radically forgive in such a way as God forgives. And you're right. It is impossible for us if it was just left up to us. But remember, he not only showed us what forgiveness looked like in sending Jesus to us to die on the cross. He showed us what his forgiveness actually looks like. But then as Jesus left and as we commit our lives to following Christ, what does he give us? He gives us a helper in the Holy Spirit to urge us toward forgiveness. Because the truth is that in light of God, we are filthy to the bottom. And we are in need of a Savior. I don't have the ability to clean up my own heart. I don't have the ability to forgive someone else. But the Spirit who dwells within me, who manifests the nature and character of God, is pushing me toward forgiveness and will continue to grow me in forgiveness. So I don't need to struggle to forgive. I need to become more like Christ. I need to dedicate myself to the reading of His Word, to the gathering and worship with the body, to the prayer. And in that, growing in the likeness of Christ, and there I find forgiveness. And there I'm able to show others forgiveness. I don't need to manifest it from my toenails. I need to become more like Christ. So what did God do for you. Well, in your despair, instead of ignoring you or punishing you, which he had every right to do, he sent his son to die for you and thereby canceled your record of debt. He canceled your record of debt. And some of you are here today and you really need to hear that sin has put you in debt to God. A debt you couldn't possibly pay. $10 billion? Do you have that bouncing around in your bank account? If so, see me after this, we need to talk. And you think to yourself, well, by my good works, I'm going to get there. If I simply live a good life, then in the end of all this, he's going to see how good my works were, and he's going to say, well, no one could deny you. 
Do you really think that you can repay that debt by washing dishes in the kitchen? Especially when the rag that you're washing with of your own righteousness is filthy. How could you possibly clean enough dishes? You can't. But here's the problem. One day God is going to call the debt. And there will be no forgiveness to be had. There will be no looking around. On that day, I promise you, you're going to come up short and it's going to be too late to have someone else pay it. But right now, He offers to pay your debt for you through repentance and the blood of Jesus Christ. So you turn to Him, confess your sin to Him, and turn from your sin and have your record of debt paid in full by the blood of Christ. The reality is, Christ paid the $10 billion for us. He paid it for us. And by believing in Him, He has given me the Helper in the Holy Spirit. He convicts me of sin. He allows me to see my sin for what it is. He allows me to understand that my position before God is redeemed sinner, not one that was worthy enough to be saved. And then understanding my position before God and understanding the grace that He has given to me enables me to forgive other people. There's a couple of things that I want to say about that. Just as a moment of application for us. How do we actually do this? There's different people in this room, and some of you, first, haven't yet accepted that God really has forgiven you. And you struggle in this pattern of sin and self-loathing, and the sin begets more self-loathing, and the self-loathing begets more sin, and then the cycle just continues to repeat, and you think to yourself, there's absolutely no way that God could have forgiven me. But do you notice that in the parable, the forgiveness that the servant is offered from the master is not contingent on the man's work? The man doesn't say, I have this debt of $10 billion. Just be patient with me. I will repay it. And the master doesn't turn to him and say, well, good, because I've got these weeds in my garden. I've got some dishes that need to be washed. What does he do? He was about to sell him for everything he's worth. He was about to sell his wife and his children. And instead of making him work to repay the debt and be patient, he just cancels it altogether. $10 billion. It's not based on your merit. It's based on Christ's merit. If it's based on your merit, every single one of us would be toast. And if you can't believe in your own forgiveness, how could you ever forgive others? Do you demand that others wallow in self-loathing like you wallow in self-loathing before the Lord? That's not the kind of forgiveness he offers you. When you actually understand God's forgiveness of you, it radically transforms your ability to forgive others. When people struggle mightily with sin, to the point I'm talking where their whole life is ruined, and they think there's, it's beyond repair now, and then they see and experience forgiveness, both from other people in their life, be it their wife or the spouse or whoever, and they experience the forgiveness of God, there's something that clicks in their mind where they're radically changed and they, they, they're never the same again. 
They never understand the grace of God again. They never question it again. Some of you struggle to forgive others because you've yet to see how bad you really are. And I would challenge you to just even right now, go home, car ride home, just ask the Lord to show you your sin. Just ask Him to. Show me my sin. Show me what all it is. Keep showing it to me until I realize how bad I really am. And one of two things is going to happen to you. So I've got good news and I've got bad news. If He does show it to you, forgiveness will be easier for you. Because you'll realize what kind of sin you've committed. If He doesn't, The reason that you struggle to forgive others is because you're not one of His. And you're trying with your nature to forgive. Because those who have been radically forgiven, Jesus says, forgive radically. But those who refuse to forgive are likewise unforgiven. So I want you to just ask something about the situation, whatever it may be, that's going on between you and another person. I want you to just Put this through a little test. First of all, is the action that they've done to you actual sin? Is what they've done to you actual sin? If it is, like you can actually point to it in Scripture and say, this is what they did to me, and it is actual sin. Then Jesus is very clear in verse 15. Go to him and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If necessary, bring a couple more Christians along with you. No, it really is sin. You need to repent of it. If beyond that, bring the church along with you. And if beyond that, you realize this person is not a Christian, the ability to repent is not there. But identify it in Scripture. Lay it out there in front of it. It's actual sin. But if you're having trouble finding it on the pages of Scripture... Probably that they've just infringed upon one of your preferences. Maybe you just hard to get along with the person. You don't really like them. They rub you the wrong way, maybe. Let me challenge you to just let it go. Just let it go. Consider 1 Corinthians 13, 4-5. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The two hardest verses for me in all of Scripture. (laughs) Maybe your frustrations with this person are really a result of your own bitterness, your own envy, your own irritability, or your own resentfulness. If so, then God is showing you your sin. Confess your sin to Him. Turn from your sin. Repent. Feel the love of His unlimited forgiveness of you. And then go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your forgiveness of us would become evident to us. Show us our sin, each one of us. As we go home, as we talk to our spouse or our kids or our friends or whomever, co-workers, put our sin ever in front of our eyes that we can see it. 
I pray, Father, that you would not only put it there, but also then remind us of the forgiveness that you have given to us in the cross of Jesus. And I pray that because of our seeing that, we would be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen.